Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and major Marvel events. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, X-Gray-X. And finally, it is at last upon us, Judgment Day is here. I don't know what you guys are talking about, I've been judging people the whole time. This crossover has been building for quite a while in the pages of the bigger Marvel picture, you know, it kind of, in many ways, sources back to that first arc of Jason Aaron's Avengers, which we recently covered in one of our trade waiting segments catching up on the series. And I think what is really special about that is getting the news just recently that that Avengers run is going to culminate in Avengers Assemble, which deals with entirely different subject matter, and that they have been able to squeeze this much out of this run and not have it come off as only there to do that work, you know, only there to bridge gaps and set up storylines that when you are reading it in the middle, it feels very self-contained. And when you step out, especially reading it in trade waiting the way that we have, you can see all of the connective tissue that they laid out. But it's a really satisfying run in and of itself. The way that it connects to Judgment Day feels like it has a lot more to do with how this team of Avengers is cohering and learning how they want to be super superheroes together rather than being a bunch of major plot points that you need to pay attention to in order to get into Judgment Day. Those plot points feel like they have a lot more to do with this storyline that's going to happen, that's going to wrap up all of this Avenger stuff. But really, it feels like the team coming together is the important part for Axe. I agree. It really feels like the Marvel Universe is being galvanized in and of itself, in part because it's not that the Eternals are against the X-Men, but rather it would appear that a select group of Eternals have decided that you know, the X-Men gotta die. But it's exactly as you said, not just filler material, it's got its own incredibly deep rich mythology and world. And I have so loved covering Avengers with you and Nathan in our trade waiting segments. One of the most fun things for me about editing these two segments for Judgment Day that our team did is that in one room Kevo has only been reading Eternals while in the other room, Josh was only reading X-Men. And then there's you, me, and Nathan that have been reading both and Avengers. We run the gamut of experiences coming to this and I think you know it's not a large enough sample size to represent the whole comic book reading audience but we have discovered the varying viewpoints that we all bring to this having a varying pull list every Wednesday. What's really fascinating is even the people that have no idea what's going on are pretty fascinated with this thing as a whole and And the reaction that I have seen from this crossover from people that aren't reading everything, even though it does feel pretty complicated, it doesn't feel prohibitive. And I feel like Marvel is doing a lot of work in the last couple of years to find some ways around the prohibitive nature of exclusionary reading experiences. I find that one of the things that makes getting into the X-Books so damning is it's like Bat Family. It's not buying three titles. It's buying 13 titles. You know, you can't really get into Spider-Man without collecting Spider-Man. 
you can kind of read X-Men by itself and it reads like its own universe. Avengers, you know, there's the Avengers title and usually the person writing Avengers has a solo book somewhere along the line. So Jason Aaron also had Thor at one point and there was a connective tissue there when Kelly Sue DeConnick did her landmark run being the first woman to regularly write an Avengers book with Avengers Assemble, a previous title with that same name. She was also the anchor voice over on Captain Marvel, helping to redefine Carol Danvers as the captain herself, as opposed to sharing the title of Ms. Marvel, which of course now belongs to Kamala Khan. And there's been this incredible effort to sort of find a way to make it easy for people who don't want to read all of X-Men, but are reading Avengers and maybe are reading Eternals to be part of this. And I feel like some of that falls to the way they've been collecting trades and omnibus editions a little bit more lately. I feel like we're seeing a lot more like era omnibus editions coming out with things like, you know, Inferno and Inferno Prologue and Fall of the Mutants and Mutant Massacre. There's a magic to the way that Marvel is trying to say, even those miniseries, even those tie-ins, even those appearances, they have weight, they have gravity. And in that way, it feels more like the playlist effect that we've been going for on this show is making its way into the way that Marvel manifests their material in physical edition. I also think there's something to be said for the fact that the X-Men are in this era that comes out of Hickman's pitch and that initial pitch, the X-Men going to Krakoa and starting this nation and becoming separatist, not entirely isolationist, the setup for that is pretty simple and has remained pretty consistent. And while there are going to be a lot of people who don't read X-Books and that's fine, there are also going to be people who maybe are reading Jerry Duggan's flagship X-Men title, Ben Percy's X-Force, but maybe they're not getting into Marauders or Knights of X, you know, titles that huge X fans really love, but just aren't the biggest name, highest profile titles. It's amazing the degree to which you can come to this giant crossover with just the knowledge of very broadly what the X-Men have been up to. And that's enough where if you are an X-Men fan and you are digging really deep into this stuff, what you bring to the table when you are reading this will give you, I think, a little more excitement and satisfaction for these characters that you love, but it is not crossover defining that you understand every eccentricity of what is going on on Krakoa in order to see this moment between these three powerhouse sections of the Marvel Universe coming to a head. I agree. And it's because I think Marvel is doing a lot to try and create a general status quo for characters more lately. There have certainly been discussions by our team about places where we have felt perhaps that there was not a cohesive singular voice from either the company or the line on characters that leaves us a little bit distraught. I know in this episode, both rooms are incredibly positive on the gene that appears in this book. She is none of the annoying, you know, things that perhaps don't feel like Jean and feel like a leftover element of somewhat unfortunate and misogynistic writing that was born of a time where women were not given their fair value in comics. Not that it's, you know, exactly equitable yet, but I feel very much as though we are seeing an effort to make the consistent iteration of a character a bit easier to get to. I know that for a while we were seeing a lot more of that with the who is and the primers on Marvel Digital Unlimited, but I feel like we haven't seen those quite as much lately. I sort of wonder what the response was to those and what the hope was for what people would get out of them. I really found them very interesting as historical documents, as a snapshot of a point in time. Scarlet 
Witch and America Chavez are two fantastic examples of the who is digital comics. It's interesting because I know a lot about both of those characters. I've read a lot. I My who is is in my head already, but I'm interested to see what the company wants me to know. And it's interesting for those two characters because they're really not going to be in this event. It, there are a lot of people here that we don't have that same primer for. And I'm not sure that we lose a lot by not having that, but I would be so interested to know for individual readers if there is anything coming out of this first issue of Judgment Day that feels so difficult to wrap your mind around or a character that you just genuinely don't get that you feel like it would be better if I had, you know, either a who is or if I'd read their Black, White, and Blood or something like that that I knew better about this character. I'm with you in everything we're saying. And as a matter of fact, I don't know that I would say that Marvel has completely abandoned the idea of the sort of inherent primer for a character. It's just that early on, we received a number of those, which have been covered on the network by Nathan. We had Captain Marvel, Venom, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, Spider-Gwen, Ms. Marvel, Amazing Spider-Man, Black Panther, Moon Knight, and even an amazing fantasy prelude to help characters orient to the nature of the narrative being provided for Wolverine in Kari Andrews' really sort of boutique fantasy project, which I thought was visually very stunning. But it feels like since then, we've gotten a handful of these who is stories with who is the Scarlet Witch and who is America Chavez. Now, I know we also did cover who is Jane Foster as Thor, but, you know, I'm so glad you brought up these black, white, and bloods because something that I caught online today that really blew my mind was Wolverine, black, white, and blood is currently regularly $3 on Comixology. I don't mean issue one. I mean issues one through four as the Marvel Treasury Edition trade paperback at any time you want it is $3 on Comixology. And it led me to ask myself a question. I mean, my read of the Lives and Death of Wolverine event was Life of Wolverine on Marvel Unlimited, but that just kind of summarized stuff like an illustrated Wikipedia. But with Black, White, and Blood, I have an opportunity to read 12 stories by varied voices showcasing varied art styles, expressing who Wolverine is by showing, not telling. I might have liked Life of Wolverine a lot more than I liked Black, White, and Blood, but I did pick up the Black, White, and Blood Treasury Edition in physical edition, and for $3, I'm going to kind of recommend everyone buy it. And Wolverine is an interesting example because he's going to be a huge part of this crossover. He's also a character that he's the one that you're most likely to know no matter what. He is a Marvel powerhouse, and it's tough for me to imagine a reader that needs a huge primer on Wolverine, which is not to say that I wouldn't also absolutely recommend Black, White, and Blood. It's a great series of stories, and Wolverine is a subtly ever-changing character because he's so popular, and so a more recent collection of stories about him will give you a feel for how writers broadly are viewing the character and playing around with him now. The Electra Black, White, and Blood that we covered earlier this year is to me a really special set of stories because this is a character that I think we both felt like should be a Wolverine and in some ways kind of is, but in terms of popularity is somebody who I think her star is on the rise for readers, but that's always a long journey and it's very fascinating to see her take it. Her Black, White, and Blood stories to me strike me as really ones that a lot of Marvel readers could benefit from because she's not a character that a lot of people know. And if she's a character that people recognize, she's not one that they know intimately and would 
would have the kind of stories that are brought to bear in Black, White, and Blood spring to mind without reading it. The really intense psychological studies that some artists do in Black, White, and Blood to describe who Electra is and what's going through her head are something I feel like a lot of people don't know. And it's of huge benefit to get to know this character who's not unfortunately going to be a huge part of Judgment Day, I don't think, but is doing her own stuff. But it really does speak to this idea that there are a lot of different ways to get to know characters. And it is to readers' benefit to kind of figure out what the best way for them to explore is. I think in some ways, my both excitement and frustration is that by virtue of some of the decisions we're talking about in this episode, we're kind of saying that Marvel has decided vaguely blanket-wise how this is going to go. When I think about what's on Marvel Unlimited, I think about X-Men Unlimited, which is, you know, 50 issues. Like, find me another book at Marvel that gets to run 50 fucking issues that has done such a consistent weekly job of rotating beautiful, incredible, nuanced stories from varied creators, both old and new, up and coming and veterans. You know, really, a knockout of the park attempt at what it is. I don't think every story is a hit. I don't think every story tells what I needed from it. But I think doing what it's attempting, it's doing a very impressive job. But that is not the book that I want anyone coming to X-Men for. That first arc that was Wolverine and Nightcrawler on a cool mission written by like one of the best voices in the history of comics? Sure. Subsequent arcs? Yeah. Look, I love Maggot, but I'm not telling people, oh, you want to check out like what X-Men is? Read that story. The Maggot story about Alex Pacnadel, which we're going to see coverage of next week, is a love letter to longtime fans rewarding them for their patience and dedication to characters that have been underserved for so long. That's not what new readers need. That's not how to bring people in. The way to bring people in are these black, white, and bloods and these sort of specialty anthologies that Marvel is taking the time to curate. And we're seeing those in comic shops. One of the things that's nice is that does seem like it's Marvel saying we have a vote of confidence in the comic shop model. Go check out your LCS. But, you know, we are seeing the book then discounted to an incredibly affordable $3 for four issues. And I'm not like, go buy it. I'm like, sometimes I feel like I got ripped off. Sometimes I feel like I paid $5.99 for 25 pages and nothing fucking happened. So when you're telling me that I can get 120 pages where nothing fucking happens, but I can get it for $3? That's like a goddamn deal, my friend. And I think nothing happens, but you do walk away with a wealth of perspective and knowledge. And that's in the comics world where you're buying a lot of little books, some of which you really need something to happen in in order to justify your purchase, some of which you can just fall in love with for the artwork, and some of which you want to be a character study, a psychological profile, something that expands your understanding. A lot of those $3 things in which nothing happens are the latter, something that really expands your understanding and gives you perspective on a character that you didn't have before. And that is really valuable if you want to get into this medium and be a long-term fan and start really accumulating story beats, plot points, character journeys, and taking satisfaction in how you see these characters develop over time. There is something that I love about that moment, that encapsulation that you get from a a really good who is. I also love some of the work that we've seen in places that show more than tell, but I'm unsure of what I should make of Judgment Day's checklist in the back at the moment. I love how many titles we're going to see intersect with Judgment Day, and I'm excited that we're going to get a crossover that has serious repercussions. If this checklist is meant to be any sort of followable read guide, 
side, I am somewhat concerned that Judgment Day number five and number six have so many one shots between them. Not that I don't believe there is always room for one shots, but I sometimes worry when you see a whole lot of one shots between the fifth and sixth issue of a series, it means that they want to really like lay into a very temporary status quo to mine everything they can from it. And those are the things that make it hard for readers. And those are the ones that when I buy the crossover omnibus, kind of skip over for the most part. You know, every now and then one of them's a hit for me. But I think that there are five or six X-Men titles intersecting with Judgment Day. And then there's a book called Axe X-Men number one. Fuck. Why isn't it just in X-Men? Oh, is it a different group of X-Men? Why? There's so many. I love it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to put myself on the coverage of it. And I'm going to talk about how necessary it ultimately was. And I'm going to be the biggest fanboy there ever was. You're all going to be like, damn, Nico, chill. But I really wonder how all of these sort of disparate elements that make up the tapestry of interaction with character reflect a single model idea. I understand that you target different people with different methods, but at the end of the day, you need everybody to come back to the same single character. I just worry that the unsynergistic push for what's best today sometimes is the reason we wind up with Moira's, where tomorrow is just real icky because you were, you know, days of future past, here comes tomorrow, awkward comics of today. It's all one big tapestry. Yeah, I'm very curious. This event leans real X-Men heavy. It is very composed of X-Men books. I am curious to know how readers that are more Avengers and Eternals people are going to fall into that, if that is by design to really push people into seeing, reading X-Men books more. The only thing I will say about the one-shots in defense of them, and this is my hope, but your fears are valid. My hopes are my hopes. I fell in love with basically every one-shot in Death of Doctor Strange. I think about the Death of Doctor Strange White Fox every day, what Alyssa Wong did with that book, and then carried it into her stellar run on the new Iron Fist, that that Iron Fist is now getting another one-shot in this, written by Alyssa Wong. It's all so exciting to me, and all born out of this one issue about White Fox, who was a character that I was not super familiar with, and became really familiar with as a result of that. The X-Men one was really fun. I really knew nothing about what was going on in the Spider-Man universe, and the Death of Doctor Strange one-shot Spider-Man really uh, did a fantastic job of very quickly telling, not really showing, but getting me the information I needed to settle into the book, which is about a very specific time in Spider-Man's life. It is not a broad Spider-Man story that you kind of apply to anything, but I really enjoyed the story. Unfortunately, still not enough to pick up Spider-Man. And the one I'm most excited about is the Star Fox one, because that is a character that I really don't care about, that I think is kind of creepy and weird, but I also know now has a bit of cachet as a big MCU cameo boy that could turn into something really real. So the idea that they might do something big with that is pretty exciting to me. I could see it being a great story. I see some potential in these one shots, almost more than like, you know, random X books that are going to be in this because I've seen Marvel do great things with their one shots recently. I'm hoping lightning can strike twice. Yeah. You know, you're making really excellent arguments here and I'm positive that our show is going to cover a lot of this. You know, we're going to definitely look at a good portion of these tie-ins. Yeah. Okay. I guess you kind of got to do it through one shots and through tie-ins. Okay. I'm here for it. And man, I'm just really excited to see where this crossover goes 
it's been just a hell of a ride. And Karen Gillan has managed to get me interested in ways I never thought I'd be interested. Like, I'm excited that this is new things from a creator I already love instead of always going back to the same things. It speaks a lot to the intention of this work. And the reason this show is Excess for Podcast is EX for Extinction. You know, every X-Men thing was Executioner Song and, you know, Fatal Attraction. So it's a pun. And it was, you know, Extinction Agenda. And Grant Morrison said, let's take what you expect and let's just fuck with it. E is for Extinction. And those are all my favorite stories. The Riot at Xavier's is not about the Riot at Xavier's. It's about the fundamental dissolution of Xavier's dream in the face of a world that no longer has the patience for burying your head in the sand to the needs of the people around you. So, you know, that's the actual Riot at Xavier's. It's the Riot at Xavier's principles. It's not the Riot at the Build. And okay, I'm really ready. I'm so ready for Judgment Day. And I think this is going to be a long time. There's a lot of stuff to sift through. We're going to be into this into December. And it's been a while since we've had such a big crossover that involves so many big names in the Marvel Universe and things that people really have a lot of attachment to and excitement for. So it's going to be a really interesting next few months as we sort through all this and start to get an idea of what the landscape is going to look like going forward for us as readers, for the characters that we love. And, you know, the thing that I always bring it back to lately is how that's going to tie into bigger projects for Marvel and characters that they are really important for them to have us love for things that they might be doing on screen. Everyone's waited long enough. Let's jump into the pages of Judgment Day number one. Could not be more excited to bring it to you. And don't forget, we bring the show to you three times a week, every week, MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere Fridays. You can check the show out at X's for Podcasts, and we hope you guys survive the experience. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. That makes me Kevo. You can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really. That's K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, X-Gray-X. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, just like those three members of the five that weren't assassinated this issue. This is such a fascinating issue to talk about. I'm so excited to be here with this crew of people to discuss Avengers X-Men Eternals Judgment Day number one by Kieran Gillen, Valerio Shidi, Marti Agracia, and Clayton Cowles. This book was born of years of storylines running across multiple titles, ultimately culminating in a single vision. Now, one of the things that makes this book so fascinating is it's born of two books we ultimately wound up covering a little bit on delay. We initially didn't cover Jason Aaron's Avengers or Kieran Gillen's Eternals quite as they came out and instead took a trade-waiting approach to both of these. Now, we're still somewhere ensconced in the earlier volumes of what is now into the teens of Jason Aaron's Avengers, which is supposedly coming to an end sometime in the next few months. But I'm so eager to find out where you all sit on the Avengers, X-Men, and Eternals when I think this really should be Marvel Heroes, Mutants 
Eternals. I have been right along with you, Nico, doing coverage on both Eternals and Avengers, as well as my standard coverage on X-Men. Unlike you, I had not read a lot of Eternals or this current run of Avengers prior to when we started covering it. So I have been getting a rapid and interesting education, but the timing was really kind of perfect because I intentionally took some time to stay away from rumors, to not really engage with speculation and fandom. I started seeing very early on a lot of fear from ex-fandom that this was going to be like what happened with the Inhumans and another attempt to vilify the X-Men. Possibly there were problems with getting them into the MCU and the Eternals and the Avengers needed to be highlighted some more. A lot of very online takes happening regarding this storyline and they all just didn't kind of sit right with me and I really wanted to just let the stories happen and so as we were ramping up to Judgment Day actually getting published we start reading Eternals we start reading Avengers and within like three issues of Eternals it is very obvious that there is no way that any of this is going to be happening such that the mutants are made to look like the villains and on top of that a really great story is being told in Eternals so one of my first things was just some real kind of disappointment in fandom and also some hope that people would come back around to these stories when Judgment Day started coming out and they realized there was more to it because Eternals is just this staggeringly beautiful epic. As the show's resident fringe comics fan, and therefore someone who's not quite as aware as, you know, of what's going on in the fandom, was that really a concern that people were having about this crossover? That this was meant to, like, tarnish mutants? Every crossover is meant to tarnish mutants. See, and I find that so fascinating as an outsider, because I feel like mutants is, like, the secondary most important part of Marvel comics as a whole like there's marvel comics and you think of the avengers whoever that may be that can be like a hundred different people to most people as far as i'm aware but then the secondary is x-men so i've never really felt that concern as someone who isn't as aware of what they do to these characters and this property if i may you know that quote i love so much of chili saying she called t-boz and said t-boz turn on the news lisa gone and burn the house down and she's talking about how left eye has burned down her boyfriend's house it's sort of like that everybody just kind of calls someone and goes well the mutants went and did it again they burned down the planet and i really genuinely 270 percent feel most of the time like crossovers exist to shit on the mutants I think you're right in that the crossovers always want to make the mutants the underdogs and pit the world against them and highlight things that are really problematic about them because I think they have been written to such a place of kind of... I don't want to say a vaunted moral stance, but the mutants are constantly going through it. And I feel like they come out of every one of these crossovers in some way kind of proving that whatever people thought they were doing wrong that led to this crossover, they were kind of in the right. We're all flawed creatures, and the Avengers see the flaws in the mutants whenever they do something wrong, but the Avengers are flawed too. And there's a big difference between the two groups, and that one is, you know, a minority group and a metaphor 
or for many other minority groups. So I don't know. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening with this, and there's a lot to talk about, and we'll get to it in this issue. But I sometimes worry that ex-fandom really sees um, some concerns that are broader than what's going on in the story, some of which might be correct, but a lot of which I think are just kind of uh, a lot of... We get to be real ex-fans about it sometimes. Right, exactly. Thank you. So going into any crossover, any versus, I'm like, okay, how are you going to set these teams up? Is one going to be more sympathetic than the other? Are we going to be telling history from the side of the winners? You know, what, what are we going to do? What are we doing here? Do they think the Krakoans slash the X-Men could take on the Eternals? Sure. I think that would be a great fight and one side will be the victor. It's usually how things shake out. Now, can this be a three-way fight? Uh, I kind of worry for the Krakoans because as they pointed out in this issue, uh, there's a very high, large population of uh, mutants whose fighting abilities with their mutant powers probably aren't going to do anything. I imagine there are a lot more mundane mutants than we are initially led to believe. But to see that this isn't so much Avengers versus X-Men versus the Eternals, it more so seems the Avengers are going to be playing distraction slash sidelining in order to kind of solve this problem in a way that the Krakoans I don't believe will be able to. However, I am very fascinated to see how this will relate to Arako in the sense of how Arako treats beings that see themselves as gods. I want to thank you for just reminding us all for a minute that like the vast majority of mutants are like Henrietta Leaf Blower and like Jiminy Hand Soap because they really, for the most part, mutants are soft serve. Bob Quinn's epic soft serve. Mutants are soft serve. Ugly John. And I think that's specifically why the Avengers are needed, though. This isn't A-V-X-V-E. Like, it's not versus between the three. It's actually starring the three. Like, I'm looking at the title page right now, and it just says Avengers X-Men Eternals Judgment Day. Because, like, the X-Men need the Avengers to back them up, and they will need the Avengers to continue to back them up through this. And that, I think, is sort of the point. That that is the role the Avengers are going to be playing. And it's going to force the Avengers to this time actually be like, oh, the mutants didn't do anything wrong. And if we're heroes and we protect people, we need to back up this fledgling nation of people that we've kind of marginalized forever. And I was glad to see everything in this issue so far seems to back that up, that they seem to realize that, no, the uh, X-Men and the mutants are just being persecuted right now, and we don't tolerate that. But I will say, I think immediately we start to see, and I this is, as I picked up on this in Judgment Day, I started to reflect on it from what I've been reading in Avengers. The Avengers are getting big enough and complex enough of a team that we're going to see divides within the team. Something that Nico pointed out to me, like, basically as we were reading this on the day it came out, was the surprise of Iron Man being so staunchly pro-mutant. Given his usual, if we're being generous, it's that futurist, you know, not wanting to take a stance, just waiting to see how things play out and plan for the utilitarian best. Also, Tony can just be an asshole, but he has had a tendency to not often fall on the side of mutants, especially at times where you would really want him to. And that, to me, was like the first... This isn't going to be as straightforward as we think it's going to be. And the Avengers, I think... I think you're right that that is the role that we need to see them play in order to see this conflict come to as good a close as it can. But this event is going through November. (laughs) And so I think we're going to see some divides. Echo is a person where I see real possibility for 
or, you know, potentially conflict with the mutants over the Phoenix Force. And there's just a lot of places where I can see that the Avengers will not be able to come to a consensus as a group that can just play referee. And I think that's going to lead to some of the most interesting conflict is the fact that we need them to, but they're not going to be able to due to their own problems and biases. I definitely think you're right. And I definitely think that is going to be a huge theme through this crossover, not just for the Avengers, but we've already seen that on Eternals and our coverage there and everything that is going on with the defecting Eternals who decided to leave Eternal Society and try and find a new way to be. And I think we are going to see that in a lot of the sides of this crossover. And for me, the thing that I keep coming back to with this crossover is as much as I would love to sit here and just like talk plot point, plot point, plot point, I am much more fascinated by the sort of rich tapestry of complex interwoven narrative that Kieran Gillen is working to find a way to balance. It's really hard to take a look at the Marvel Universe of the last 10 years and not acknowledge the vastness of the Thor Phoenix connection and all of the ways in which that is really at the breaking point, especially if Jason Aaron is potentially leaving Avengers at some point in the next few months, it has to be finished. We need to get that answer and that there are so few Avengers here and even so few Eternals on this credits page, but it's like every fucking mutant is really interesting to me. I have to break in real quick to ask what answer? Because I don't really know what Phoenix Thor thing you're talking about. So Phoenix is probably Thor's mom. Oh, yeah. Like the Phoenix Force. Like in its Odin first... did sex with the Firebird. And like, okay. In its first form on Earth, in the form of Phoenix Avengers 1 million BC. And it is quite truly one of the most dividing things in the history of Marvel Comics fandom. Was there something in this issue that referenced that? The fact for or me. Or you're that, just saying in general. Well, once you get that moment where Scott's like, hey, Gene, when the Phoenix flies overhead, do you ever miss it? And Gene's <laughs> jealous. And Gene's like, stop it. Scott, get it together. You fucking, I can't. And like, that's like the highlight of my life. That was great. Echo's in the, Echo has the Phoenix Force right now, which is another wrinkle in this whole thing. Rebecca Roanhorse did this really fascinating series about Echo and her connection to the Phoenix and the Phoenix's connection to other Native American cultures throughout history. I don't see that playing like the biggest role in all this, and especially like from a plot perspective, but it is really crazy that the Phoenix identity in Marvel Comics is expanding in ways that I don't think 10 years ago any of us would have imagined. Oh yeah, or in any way that it was originally intended, but that's what's so wonderful and terrifying about something like this that is an ongoing narrative and franchise where you kind of have to continually be reinventing these concepts or they get stale. I, again, though, as outside guy, have to say I, for how many times have I said on this show, I forgot again that Echo is the Phoenix (laughs) and I see the Phoenix and I'm like, oh, oh, right. And it's not that it was like distracting or took away from the comic, if anything 
everything, you know, I still felt I really got a lot of all sides of this comic. And I think that's a testament to how well it was written and produced that I was able to really follow along with it, only really knowing the Eternals side of things. And I don't mean to pass any sort of statement, but I can't help but notice how many of these X-Men are either maybe getting a little bit ramped back up into this crossover or suddenly in costumes that look a whole lot like the things that were just revealed for X-Men 97. So it's interesting that there is such a level of attractive corporate synergy. I'm really at a point where what I want the most is for Kieran Gillen and Jason Aaron to sort of sit down and take a look at the bigger picture because I think corporate synergy is leading us in two specific places. And I've been hyping one of them for literally three years. And the other one, I've only been talking about a little bit here and there, mostly on my coverage with TK and our solo stuff. But I do think we're moving to a point where Xavier is becoming the secondary, the much less important thing than the X-Men. And I would not be surprised if Marvel and Disney were going to remove X from this concept. I would not be surprised if we wind up with the mutants everywhere and they find some way to remove Xavier from it because the last thing we need is the biggest franchise to be named after a super problematic white man who has taken advantage of women, has appropriated culture, has just this side of conscripted people based on their genetics into a complex war. And I really think we could be moving away from Xavier and the other thing is Miracle Man is coming. Everybody hold on to your dicks you know in the nicest way possible i sort of blame patrick stewart for any pop culture love of the character of xavier yes it goes back to the animated series but the fact that patrick stewart came so close on the heels to that there's a generation of kids it's the same thing with beast there's a generation of kids that associate these characters with media that portray them in a way that's sanitized that does not in any way reflect the comics And I don't think Xavier would have gotten as far away with as much as he has, if not for Patrick Stewart, because I totally agree with what you're saying, but I don't think that there is as much like devotion for Beast, who played very little role in the films and was played by Kelsey Grammer. (laughs) But Patrick Stewart, everyone loves him, and so everyone loves Xavier through him, but he's a very rosy lens for that character. I'm very interested and fascinated to see where Marvel as a property wants to take the X-Gene Havers. And I, I want to phrase it that way because it's really the best way to denote mutants. Something that I think about is that there's a very big difference between a mutant and a mutate. And there are many characters within Marvel that are human mutates that aren't mutants. And, you know, the biggest defining factor is do you have the presence of the X-Gene in you? If you have the X-Gene, you're a mutant. If you don't, you're not a mutant. That's kind of, that's supposed to how, that's how it works. And I think there's a great delineation that Marvel wants to take to make sure that we know, okay, these are the characters that are defined by this parameter, and these are the stories we're going to throw them in. And having these characters defined by the team name a character came up with many, many years ago that doesn't feel as representative of the brand anymore is, and that's what I think that the 
Mar uh, Marvel, I think, is trying to shift towards. They're trying to shift towards a different brand identity that makes it more homogenous, makes it more recognizable, and makes it more inclusive and separative of the different stories they want to take. You know, you look at the X office, and I don't know if any other group has as many titles as they get to have, because there's, there are so many characters and so many spinoff titles that came out of this one singular team that they had to, you know, to tell all of these stories, we had to give them 50 million different titles. Having, you know, one umbrella term, instead of calling everybody the X-Men, calling them the mutants or whatever name they're going to go with, is a way to help fix the branding of calling everything an X-Men team because they want to define the, the team of characters on the team called X-Men to be very different than the general, we call all people who are on Krakoa or all people who were at the Charles Xavier Institute of Gifted Students, X-Men, because the truth is they're not. Being an X-Men is you are specifically a team member. Not every Krakoan member is an X-Men. They're Krakoans, they're mutants, and they're, I think they're trying to make sure we have that differentiation for everybody to understand, especially with the prevalence of them coming to the MCU eventually. There's going to be a larger influx of people who maybe want to be interested in reading those comics, and they're going to want to make sure that it's an easy bridge. You know, we talk about that all the time, that because of the success and growth of the MCU, a lot of comics are being framed in a way, whether it's tie-ins, whether it's costume recognizability, whether it's similar stories, whether it's characterization that lines a little bit closer to the MCU or somewhere in the middle of with comic characterization and other media characterization, they want to make sure that they can, you know, bridge those communities. So having, you know, a title, having a team, having all these different things come closer together so it's easier to search for, easier to buy, easier for all these different things, I think is really what they're trying to strive for. And I think it really goes to the heart of the fact that you said the word community and it really explores exactly the difference. The Avengers are some people who happen to have powers and want the same job. They're just kind of like cops. And then the Eternals are kind of like one really creepy, fucked up, incestuous family that is going to own the biggest part of the town forever. They're never going to have to get rid of the factory. It seems like they never stop churning out identical white people. And it's that family. God, what a metaphor. But then the X-Men, the mutants, they're a culture. We see ourselves in individuals in the super teams, but we see ourselves as communities in the X-Men. And I think that's why to decentralize it from a single person and to remove the Xavier from this identity and to make it the mutants makes it of the people when it's an of the people. Here's the only flaw that I would point to in all of this, because I think everything you guys are saying is correct in terms of the necessity of doing it. Even like if you don't want to point out that Xavier is problematic, just the fact that so much of the X-Men lore and the fact that they use that character is tied to Charles Xavier. And that's just a really weird thing to base your entire like an entire branch of your franchise around but also look to how many times you guys both said x office and x titles it's just the fact that it's it is such an iconographic part of that branch of the franchise and i don't know if you can or how successfully you'll be able to remove x 
from X-Men. And it's really funny because I have been having this exact same discussion with my partner, Jake, who I hope will be listening to this while he's they're also recording their own coverage of this because they are on Team Mutants and that we are making a drive towards a broader definition, something more like mutants. We've been talking about the deadline rumor, which people are treating as very likely for some reason that I don't understand because there's not a lot backing it, but the right. deadline rumor that whatever the first thing coming out for Marvel involving the mutants is going to be will be titled The Mutes. And I said, I don't think that that is possible because the X brand is just too indelible. It is too longstanding. It is too associated. But, and I, and I kind of put my foot down on that. I said, you know, I don't buy this rumor. It's just a rumor. I don't think it has any more weight than anything else. And I don't think whether it's true or not that it is a good idea because of all of these things that I've just said. But Jonah and Nico, I have to say, you really are turning me more than I expected that I would be able to be turned this early on. I understand the idea of why you would want to do it, but I'm starting to pick up from what we're discussing why it actually might make more sense. We're recording this during San Diego Comic-Con. We're not there, but it's happening at the time that we're recording this. In a lot of discussions that I've been seeing, one thing that I keep feeling like I have to point out to people is that Marvel and Disney, by extension, are corporations. They have a responsibility to maximize profit for their shareholders. Decisions are made based on that idea. And when I say something like the X brand is too important, what I mean is it stands the most chance of turning a profit. However, I think there are arguments to be made and I'm hearing them now and my my wheels are starting to spin for sort of long-term planning and branding of a concept that might be able to generate more over time if it is not associated with one particular man, period, because who the hell knows? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. But also, in this case, a man whose entire identity is sort of going by the wayside of what we find to be mainstream and popular and bringing everybody to the table. And I also wonder if it's an effort to distance themselves from the 20 years of only moderately successful X-Men films, not really a lot of other success in multimedia. And, you know, look at the animated series that they're doing. Hooray, it's already renewed for a second season. (laughs) Literally, the title is X-Men 97. In the title, (laughs) it is data. (laughs) They're literally saying, hey, guys, we're not out of ideas. We just don't want to use other ideas yet that's because that's what it is yeah because they're giving people old costume you know they're giving you're getting a different magneto costume but it's one from issue 200 of uncanny and it's just a giant m on the chest i could make that that's what jughead wears in the archie comics with the s (laughs) i'm a weirdo have you never seen me without this hat that's weird (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of weirdos with hats Xavier's helmet, man. Let's talk Cerebro for a minute. Oh, I really am very okay with the sort of horrifying body count that we got on Krakoa. And here's why. It's so stupid, but if you're going to make the X-Men immortal, give me a body count because it doesn't matter, right? I, I'm not saying I'm here for torture porn, but you can't say that Krakoa is, you know, we hear Moira be like, I gave them everything. No, you gave them a headache 
Get it together, Moira. I don't know. First of all, now I want to see your doctorate. I want to see it. I want to call the bursar's office and make sure you're at least current on your loans or something. I don't know. But I'm very disappointed in you, you you old hag. Yeah, again, as outsider, I, I don't really know what happened, that everything fell apart with Moira, and I didn't feel like those two panels cleared it up for me anymore. <laughs> Like, um, this is my favorite thing. I remember, like, didn't she help establish Krakoa? And now she's, like, in someone else's body. And I don't know how we got from A to D. And I don't want to explain it to you. Keep keep yourself in the dark, which I just, yes, this is. This is Robo Mech Terrible. And she has replaced Moira in a we just don't want to talk about it way. It's a soap opera. The master went evil again, too. It feels like the writing around Moira has really so much more to do now with the fact that structurally in the X office, things changed. And the ideas that were pushing Moira to the forefront as the character we knew left with Jonathan Hickman. And unfortunately, she's still one of the biggest cogs in the machine at that point so now we have to find a new way for her to be as important as she was without somebody that was i think going to take her in a pretty different direction and so we get this radical shift that is just becoming more and more unhinged and it feels like this is just kind of the only way they were able to allow her to have the weight that the books all insisted that she have while not trying to keep her in a role that without Jonathan Hickman she can no longer fill. She was going to be important and we're going to keep that part but we're (laughs) going to get rid of anything that was good. Yeah I mean basically. And you know that was probably when of my lower moments in the book. I am no fan of what they've done to Moira. And, you know, I actually am no fan of the disservice Hickman did to Moira by purposely keeping her off the board in a proprietary method to protect her for himself. I even understand why he did what he did, but that was not the moment for me. I wanted to mention just a couple of really wonderful moments. I don't know if everybody else maybe appreciated them as much, but in the rebirthing scene in the Arbor Magna, uh, location 25 of 35, if you're reading along on Comixology page, I don't have the physical of, I uh, don't have the physical. So I just really love the pragmatism of Wolverine being like, I fucking hate this. Call Brand, call Beast. Ooh, where's Cable? And then Jean is just like, what about the people on Mars? Jean always being who I need her to be in contrast of so many of the cultural perceptions of her. And then we get hope in the moment that made my life. Where's my dad? And then Cable's mad, and these are my X-Men, so I'm thrilled. And this is a family. Another question. What happened to when Cable was a teenager? Is that over? Yeah, we just arbitrarily decided to get rid of a lot of really great character progression because the book sort of dead-ended itself. Well, the book did dead-end itself, and it's a thing I'm really annoyed slash surprised that they did it because they had just done it with Extermination, but he travels back to where he came from, and old man Cable that comes back is this teen-aged. So he has all of those same memories are from 50 years ago or whenever in his 
past and everybody else it for them it was yesterday uh, uh, which is exactly what happened with the original five x-men when they traveled back to their time period after being in the present for so long and they all immediately in the present as adults unlock their teenage memories of traveling to the present as teenagers and then it's never really spoken of again it just has to be there to resolve the fact that any of this happened i accept time lock stuff because of doctor who it's fine sure it's just the disappointment of the character growth that never seems to appear as a result of all yeah. this stuff that happened that really bums me out unless it's gay unless it's gay did anybody else have any other significant pages or moments in this book that really did it for them? I loved seeing the phoenix in full force. I just like Echo, and I know we were talking about her earlier, and seeing it be like a full actual cosmic phoenix, I was like, oh, cool, we're getting that again. I like that. That's the good stuff. Seeing Sinister chained up, that's always a great time for me. <laughs> well, and I want to interact with that Echo moment for a minute. First of all, I would really like it if Echo and Jean just meet and they're like, hey, can we just say that some white people oversimplified things and there's two very different cosmically powered firebirds and they're just fucking different ones of the earth and it is your native people and you get to keep this phoenix echo because life incarnate isn't one fucking bird and gene you're the phoenix of chandelar and you're bird people because again life incarnate isn't one fucking bird like boiling it down that only one spicy wendy's chicken nugget can be the phoenix is really silly so first of all they should just agree there's more than one of them they get to both be the phoenix and if you have a problem with it they're going to burn you secondly i have no problem with what they did to cersei because i feel as though the eternals have been operating completely unchecked for quite a while and if it takes four of you to subdue one of you temporarily in a situation that you're pretty sure she can break out of at any time she wants to you haven't really subdued anyone yeah the phoenix thing is going to be really interesting we know that gene is getting a solo issue in this that is going to deal with phoenix stuff again we've got this thor thing i don't care what the change is i actually nico i really like your suggestion i think you could kind of do i think it should always come back to like there is a root you know the white hot room core phoenix but i love the idea that like incarnation wise there's something more and more complex going on and like just we didn't have the right language when this all started and we thought we were dealing with the whole entity but we weren't we were just dealing with pieces of it because it's throughout time and space it's in everything and what you were getting is one particular incarnation that's what genes was echoes is a different one they all go back to the same source but this can explain everything there there are ways and this is one of like 800 definitions we could all come up with as x fans with all the continuity behind us and research done and all that i want to see something i would like to pay tribute to gene and rachel's time with the phoenix and how much it means to their characters and at the same time i would like to free this cosmic force that is you know galactus level other people get to play with galactus not just the fantastic four it makes sense for somebody like Echo to get to play around with the Phoenix Force. It makes sense for the Phoenix to play a role in God stories. This is all really cool stuff. We just need that work done and we need it to be additive. Even if it's retconning, it needs to be additive continuity work that honors all of the different ways we're seeing Phoenix show up lately and how we want to see it show up. And what you're saying really also ties into everything that we are saying about taking down the wall between 
between the X-Men and the rest of the Marvel franchise and integrating mutants and mutant lore and mutant culture into the Marvel Universe. And the X-Men and mutants were a metaphor for societies that had to live in shadows for so long. And, you know, now it's the 2020s and we're heading toward the 2030s and we don't really do that sort of stuff anymore. And now the mutants need to represent societies that resist and continue to thrive no matter how much you try to tear them down. And part of that is integrating in with the rest of the world and doing stuff like the Phoenix Force not just being proprietary to X-Men and mutants. If it's a cosmic force and entity, why wouldn't it have ties to Echo's culture or to Thor's culture? Huh. Jean would make a good Alphaba. <laughs> defying gravity. <laughs> I feel like I could see her doing that as a karaoke song. Emma Frost is really insulted that you want her to sing popular. But then she does it. But then she does it. She has the microphone in her bag. Emma Frost's go-to Broadway ballad is my strongest suit from Aida. I don't think she wants to sing I'm Not That Girl. I'm not saying that it doesn't fit, but I'm saying she doesn't (laughs) want to sing it. She's not Alphaba. She is a strong woman who felt weak and found her strength and doesn't need anyone to do it for her. And I would really love to see her and Jean do a really affectionate trading positions version of anything you can do from Annie Get Your Gun. That somehow is a mashup with The Boy Is Mine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we need to produce this now. We're on uh, it. Two things. One, I hope that the microphone in her bag is a Britney microphone. You know, the one that like earpiece. That's yes. number one. Number two, yeah. Emma could also do a great Don't Cry For Me Argentina. She'd be a good yeah. Evita. Anyway. Okay. But so is Jean. Are you just picturing Madonna as as Emma though? <laughs> well, that's no, a valid I'm picture. Thinking, which is fair. I was thinking um. of Patty Lapone. <laughs> But also, I feel like Emma might be entering her Evita phase as a member of the Quiet Council, so this is particularly appropriate. Yeah, don't cry for me, Krakoa. Exactly. I see the Krakoan production of Urine Town, and somebody at the end, probably Stacey X, just stands up and goes, wait, so they were in Urine Town the whole time? Urine Town's a real place? Uh, To interact with something that you said, Kevo, I would love for the X-Men's representative qualities, because the mutants have always, from their initial conception, were meant to represent marginalized groups that were affected just because they existed, and, and they were persecuted because of who they were. I would really love and appreciate for Marvel to expand that definition and really showcase what the modern representation would look like because, you know, there is power in resistance, there is power in showing love, there is power in so many different things and I would really love and appreciate where the mutants representation gets expanded to reflect more of the modern movements and the modern struggles and the modern fight of what that looks like today for those marginalized groups. I personally think the Phoenix Force doesn't need to be on the mutants. They don't need it. At this point, if we're identifying the Phoenix as this cosmic force and entity and this i don't think the x-men need it and let it go i don't think the x-men need the phoenix one way or the other it doesn't really matter to me i just want to get so it feels like we are in a weird place that we have been ever since gene got resurrected and said this weird goodbye to the phoenix that was like too certain 
And then a lot of stories happened that I think a lot of people just were not prepared for and were left very open-ended and nebulous in a way that would be okay for like basically anything but the Phoenix Force. And now we're just in this place where we just need to have a next step of some kind. I wouldn't hate living in a world where we got, really it's just about making the fans accept that it doesn't need to be an X thing, which I don't think at this moment they do at all. But yeah, we just got to get out of, I don't want to say limbo because that means something here, but the nebulous zone we're in for the Phoenix. And we are certainly moving away from nebulity to concretitude. And I, we, wow. a couple of other standout things. We talked about how, I, you know, I don't even know that Iron Man is like pro mutants, but Iron Man is here to defend the mutants for a minute and I'll take it. Cap being like, look, I'm just not here to commit any human rights atrocities. I don't care if she's an eternal. This just isn't my shit. I don't want it. I'm not here for it. So like, there's such a resigned, we're stuck in this crossover mentality <laughs> that the character characters have that what makes it great is they do not see the magnitude of this crossover even in the meta-contextual, self-referential, aware of the universe they are in way in which these Avengers are aware of the grand scale that crossovers are, they haven't seen the preview images and they don't have the solicits or the variants. And so there's kind of an ironic fun to this for me. There's a sort of, you know, humor that these characters think oh fuck it's just time to do a kirby thing again let's uh let's do an eternals i guess but what they're really in for is something secret wars sized possibly way closer together than the marvel universe is ready for and on that level the meta contextualized humor of this book sustains my life i think that's a really good way to put it i don't think any of us have ever been ready for a gillen aaron various offices all working together enormous crossover like this we're all in for surprises but this is not going to go in for the reader or for the characters predictable directions in a way that i think is really fun and very funny this book is having fun with itself right from the get-go cersei is a great character to kind of be that person where it can be and sound kind of silly where they're when they're sitting at lunch get ramped up to 11 with Echo showing up, get kind of sassy again, and then Steve shows up and is like, this is all fucking ridiculous, but also you're torturing somebody, please stop. We're going back and forth constantly having campy Moira and Druig in the mix being almost silly, like hand-wavy villains, and then Uranus shows up and does a genocide on Arako. There's so much there. There's so much speculation to be had. That really needs to be dealt with. There is just so much here that I don't think is going to go the way that we all expect things to go based on what we know from crossovers we've seen in the past. This is a new type, and I really like that. That's exciting. And to pick up on both the unexpected and the humorous of it and to say a moment that I really loved from this issue. I mean, of course, when Makari and Ajak need to build a god, the person with the hubris that they think of to go to is Tony Stark. And so I really love that element playing in the background of all this. I'd forgotten about Ajak and Makari's little quest throughout this entire issue until we got to that ending. And I was like, holy shit, that's going to be playing through the background of all of this. And you know that's going to have to go somewhere too. And what the hell is that goddamn 
government thing going to say about all of this? And how is it going to affect everyone's actions? And exciting. This is so exciting. And if it's a space god robot, is it also a suit of armor? Uh... And also, like, yeah, it's exciting, but why should any of us care about what this guy is going to say either? So who knows what's going to happen? feels like we might have some fighting between the Eternals and the X-Men, but the Avengers are kind of there working in the background to stop the Eternals in a way that will officially stop the Eternals that won't have, you know, so much bloodshed. And I do kind of appreciate that it isn't strictly like we're pitting these two teams together and this person's going to fight this person. And this is because truly at the end of the day, verses I think are a lot more about fan service than they are really about storytelling because watching a bunch of good guys fight one another, I don't know how completely compelling that can always be you know i think it maybe works in the context of civil war if there's a specific cause where it's really good split but there are times where i'm like you're having these people fight because you want fans to enjoy seeing these people fight and people love to theorize of who would actually kick whose ass and so on so forth but i really do appreciate that this story seems to be less about we're having these team fights and more of there's this really big conflict where somebody in with a little bit too much power is trying to show off that power in a way that most people look at it being like i don't know who's fully on team eternals but good for them i guess there seems to be a very clear distinction of who is specifically right who is specifically wrong but this story isn't about you know the right versus wrong conflict it's much more about how is this going to play out in basically turning against everything that they've known and everything they're essentially built for and i'm really interested and excited to see how that's going to play out i'm not as excited for you know a bunch of Eternals fighting a bunch of Krakoans slash mutants, which can be fun, don't get me wrong, I'm going to always enjoy a good fighting panel, but I'm much more interested in the implications and the ramifications of where the story will go. We did not get a chance to dive super hard into the Valerio Skeeti art, which is just absolutely amazing, iconic, incredible depictions of some of these characters. Tony Stark looks better than he's looked in any comic in forever. Cersei, just stunningly beautiful. Every X-Man is perfect. Weirdly, despite the fact that he's a genocide and falling apart, I kind of want to fuck Uranus. I don't know. It's all weird, but it's really good. The hex are amazing. This was jam-packed full of stuff. We could have kept talking about so many other things for as long as we talked about what we did really bodes well for this crossover. I think Jonah nailed it on the head in terms of how this is different from other verses and what we're going to see going forward. This is just a really strong start and I'm so looking forward to talking about this with everybody on the team throughout the next three or four months. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Access for Podcast. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I'm Josh Wheel, you can find me on Twitter at AsleepAtTheWheel, W-E-I-L, and at AsleepAtTheWheel.com. Hey everybody, I'm Jake, you can find me on Twitter at OmegaSentinel, O-H-MegaSentinel, and we hope you survive the experience, unlike Abigail Brand, who got incinerated and her sunglasses got stepped on, so boom. Yay, she deserved it though! <laughs> Although we know they'll bring her back. Boo. Y'all, Destiny finally had her vision coalesce. Now she finally knows who the X-Men are going to be at war with. And soon, the Eternals. So, like, I know, Jake, you've been reading along with us, the Eternal story. Mm -hmm. Josh, where are you with this whole saga leading up to this event? 
I had not been reading Eternals. I went back and I ordered the trades, but, you know, probably a little too late as everyone else was. It was on back order. It came in last week and it has not been read yet. One of the things that I found is that I'm really not super interested in the Eternals. And <laughs> a lot of it is post MCU. I mean, I know it's not the most favorite movie people have, but I dug the Eternals movie. I've watched it a couple times with my kids. They love the design of the deviants in it. And it's hard for me to kind of make adjustments from some of those adjustments because having not read it before you know I default imprinted on Gemma Chan Cersei and Barry Keegan Druig it's definitely not that so it makes it a little less accessible for myself as well that's fair like when you get into the series itself and you kind of like read through just like Cersei's part she seems very much even though she physically looks like the Gemma Chan character a lot more she still retains a lot of her fun elements when she was in the Avengers and I really think she gets more of a nuanced deepening of her character because she's not just out there to party it seems like it's more she's enjoying her life because immortality is so boring <laughs> one of the thematic elements that carries through both in the the series and the film is this idea that the Eternals aren't just programmed to protect Earth aren't just programmed to protect people but it's something that they want to do because they've been watching humanity grow and they have a tenderness and an affection for them I, I think like different Eternals have it to a different degree but Cersei when pressed will always step up for humanity because she wants to see them protected and thriving her like individual characterization is totally different from the movie but I think that core motivation is still there and, and comes through in this issue particularly because she's still very concerned about what's happening yeah yeah she's one of the closer ones Kieran Gillen definitely seems to be coming closer with Ajax mm -hmm. as well it's hard as a Drukari shipper from the movie to, you know, get over that disappointment. But yeah, it's nothing against it. Kieran Gillen's one of my favorite writers. I will sit down and digest it. Only Death is Eternal. That first trade is sitting right next to me. But I guess that that'll go into, you know, one of my biggest gripes about Axe issue one is just that it is really an Eternals issue featuring the X-Men, not an X-Men comic at all. This first issue is, and I want to say we're going to be getting Death to the Mutants coming up soon. I feel like we might rotate around perspectives as we go. I had the totally opposite impression. I was just rereading it and I was like, this has a surprising amount of like deep X-Men moments for a series that I was really expecting was going to spend a bunch of time vilifying them. We really spend more time getting in the heads of individual characters, like some of the leadership of every part of the X world and, and how they're responding to this news of war. You get the core group of Avengers, you get Cersei and you get Druig, but you don't really get the different factions of the Eternals and how they're reacting to this. You don't see Thena in yep. this issue. You don't see Fastos. You do see Ajak and, and Makari and doing Sinister with a ball gag in his mouth, which is very entertaining. <laughs> and completely understandable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who would not bind him and stick a ball gag in his mouth? He needs it. He does. He does. He might enjoy the ball gag too much, and I don't really feel like he's actually exciting a Nazi. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's not a thing he would like. <laughs> He's, uh, he's into dominance. He's he needs into to hear himself talk. Not, not his thing. <laughs> you know, and he is into cape play, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> he's into cape play. 
<laughs> While we're on the subject of the Eternals' perspective of this, we get that opening narrative from what we assume to be the world machine, or at least a lot of people assume to be the world machine. I have a I different know, yeah. idea about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's in red as opposed to blue, and it's much less personable than usual. Mm-hmm. My first thought was, are the Eternals going to end this by building a new world machine on Araco, the red planet, as opposed to the blue planet? An interesting thought, but I discarded that quickly because I think this is narration from the god that the Eternals are trying to make. Yeah, It speaks in godlike terms, saying things like, you do not know me, I wish to know you. It is very didactic, and the most important sentence in this, I think, is, I do not yet exist, but I am of such power that I can speak to you even now, which is very frighteningly godlike, the ability to talk to somebody in prophecy before you are even created. I think this is, I think this is the voice of the god they're trying to make talking to us. I completely agree with that chill of like, what is the magnitude of this thing that before it even coalesces into existence, it lingers in the past before being in the present. Yes. The language itself is like the language that a god uses. The very mystical inversions of sentences and the ominous all-knowing, all-teaching kind of vibe. The whole like, I'm not making baby noises to children. I'm staring at ants. I think there's so much here that doesn't fit with the world machine as we know. And like the color scheme and the more aggressive attitude might lead me to believe Mars. Like if they're going to create another world machine. But I think the Eternals have moved past the phase of like expanding in that form, at least because they've excluded other people for attempts at that. Maybe that'll be what happens, but I like the inclusion of a a new god in here, and I like the idea that it's already aware. I'm not up to date with all your fancy words and and shit. (laughs) But no, absolutely. I got the same read that this is the god they were going to create out of whatever the pieces of the thing that they're all standing inside of in the Avengers secret hideout or whatever, because I'm not reading those books. I'm reading X books. Okay? This isn't Avengers is for podcast. <laughs> is that Lorna down in the bottom going to Starbucks to get her flat white? Yes. That is Lorna okay. because there's no other woman on earth who has long green hair, wears gla- sunglasses, and fashion like that. Except for the <laughs> one that you just pointed out by saying who else wears sunglasses. Oh, yeah, but who else has long Oh, and green hair. Hmm. Well, that's not Abigail Brand. But Abigail no, Brand does Lorna. not dress like that. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Unless green hair is just the fashion. Yeah. No. Maybe, yeah. maybe this person saw Lorna Dane and was like, I'm going to make her my whole persona. Mutant <laughs> culture is penetrating to the maxi culture. She went and bought her Jan Van Dyne mutant gear. <laughs> <laughs> Inspired by and culturally appropriated from. (laughs) And that handbag does look suspiciously like a Wolverine mask, too. (laughs) 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 Maybe it's Lorna Dane. Maybe it is just The other thing I wanted to say about coming into this very Eternals heavy story, which I understand it's Eternals heavy. You know, Kieran Gillen's writing it and he's been the lead writer on Eternals as well as Immortal X-Men. We've already had an Avengers versus Men, you know, big key difference and added here is the Eternals. But also, I mean, I am having some PTSD flashback to that time when, you know, they were like, hey, everyone, we're going to make the Inhumans huge and you're going to love them and they're going to be bigger than X-Men. And we're all like, no, you're fucking not. And there is a bit of this that feels like, hey, everyone, we're going to make the Eternals huge and you're going to fucking love them. Well, I'm glad they gave us Kieran Gillen this time instead of Charles Soule. Still feeling like this is all being kind of push on me without my full consent like you love <laughs> x-men and so now you're gonna fucking read eternals god damn it well josh the reason you feel that way is because you're not reading eternals which like is a really good book that's the main difference between this and ivx right is because there was no good in humans <laughs> no there wasn't 
the thing with Inhumans is like there wasn't a cap on how many Inhumans you could have. Like the whole idea of using them to replace mutants was that you you could just shuffle the mutants off the board and here's a whole population of people. The Eternals are like a limited scope kind of. I mean, like limited in their in their numbers scope kind of people. Um, so there's only so many toys you can play with and and so many things you can do with them. 101 if you count the brothers twice. It is not 101 if you count the brothers twice. They it's 99. It <laughs> I counted all those Eternals. It is 99. There's no wow. Is that where it counts up to 101 and Sprite is missing still? <laughs> it's crazy. Respect for the count, though. The big thing that has me more excited about this event than the Inhumans versus X-Men. In this book, so far, what we're seeing Kieran Gillen set up is, is our heroic characters are still able to stay out of it and be heroic. Whereas in the, the humans that everybody knew, like Medusa. like Were, were there heroic Inhumans? I don't know. Were there any Inhumans? Was it Agatha all along? <laughs> At least we still get to keep our heroes, our well-known Eternals, as a force for good like or kind of good or maybe good or whatever they want to do that's actually really nice is that the eternals that we actually like reading about and like reading in the comics are still going to be those people it's just that eternal society as distinct from the eternals team or eternals friends that we think of is corrupt like the mutant society and also like the human society so there's a lot of parallelism going on here i like that these teams actually have reasons to fight and it's like the mutants are being victimized here by the eternals but it's not the eternals as a team in the way that like Captain America coming over to be a cop to the X-Men is like a bad look, you know? Druid can do that all day and it's not going to ruin his like cultural cachet as a hero. So this event in, in that way is so different because we're not just sacrificing characterization to make heroes fight. The Phoenix being possessed by Echo in the Avengers, you know, Scott very pointedly <laughs> points out, he's like, I'm not, is it weird that I feel, should feel possessive of this? It is this? weird, Scott. It's weird that you feel possessive of the Phoenix, Scott. Don't say that oh, to you, Scott. I love that exchange so much first of all it's just a weird thing to say to it your is... wife who used to be an avatar of the phoenix but i also love how gene is just like huh what's that <laughs> did you say the phoenix is over there scott oh i wasn't paying attention i'm so sorry like what that's I just the best I was take distracted. on Jean we've had in fucking forever, though. Absolutely. I do love that she can't be bothered that the Phoenix is somewhere <laughs> else. She's like, I don't fucking care. It's not with me anymore. Thank God. Yeah, honestly, I really do think that, like, yes, she's probably distracted by all the people being like, life hoarders, these piece of shit humans who are out there. But, like, on the other hand, it's also very Jean to be like, oh, her? I don't think about her. That's something she says whenever he brings up Emma, too. He's like, so I was talking to Emma, and he's like, who again? <laughs> Oh, oh, her. Yeah. Let's be clear that this is all Kieran Gillen across uh, Immortal and this book now that has completely flipped the gene as mentally unstable and fractured and uh, can't handle all the stress to like Phoenix who? And Emma as the confident, soulless, badass bitch who can't fucking sleep at night because she's carrying the burden of the fucking multiple worlds on her shoulders. Isn't it so cool to see this writer who who has such a strong, like, Immortal's only a few issues in, but Kieran Gillen has such a strong grasp on the Krakoan era and where these heroes are in now, and obviously he is, like, the current modern expert of the Eternals, so it's really gonna, it's really cool to see how he's fit that in to juggling all the pieces together. Everybody seems pretty much how they are, even Aaron's Avengers don't seem out of character. It's almost like Kieran Gillen's like, okay, Jason Aaron, what would you do if you were writing the scene? 
team. Like, it feels like everybody sort of came together to make this work. Kind of like what the X-Line has been doing as a whole. Yeah. And honestly, like, Kieran Gillen does a great job pulling together the Eternals and the X-Men because he's writing both of them. Pulling in the Avengers, obviously, works pretty well because they have pretty loose characterization in Jason Aaron's comics as it is. And as long as the art is good, they're recognizable. And that's something that I think Valerio Shidi really nails in this issue because he's been, like, a dream guy on the X-Men for a while. And seeing him cover the Eternals and the Avengers as well is, like, really awesome. Um, He has this knack for, like, remembering what's in a scene that always just wows me. Like, when Echo attacks... Sorry, the Phoenix attacks uh, Cersei. Like, Cersei's shoes are left on Earth because that's where she got knocked out of them. And then in space, Echo simultaneously punches the straw out of Cersei's mouth and claws the drink out of her other hand. And that's just, like, so nice to remember in a fight scene that she was drinking something. There were so many little things like that all throughout. Whether it was the remnants that you could find, like the treasure hunt, the look and find of who these bones and artifacts belong to on Arako after Uranus was done. I mean, if it's the fighting on Krakoa where you know going back through a second time I'm like oh my god strong guy's punching someone in the background there oh they fucking killed Marrow Marrow's lying dead in the bot like there's little bits all throughout little background details there's fully realized world depth in all of these panels this isn't like 90s house art where it's like and this background is all blue Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. this background's all gray there's power in this whole layout I'm looking at like page 16 and 17 of digital where you've got moira at the democles foundation and right in front of moira there's some donuts and coffee and then like you don't see him you don't see him you don't see him and then that page you see druid picking that up five page later he's eating half a bagel yeah 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 i can't i love the design of the democles foundation because i never realized it was just the eternals logo but it's druid and it's also kind of like a like a euro or a dollar thing you know like there's so much that goes into that logo it's really good oh he's also carrying a cup of coffee out through the portal as he's saying goodbye to Moira. Just a little paper cup. <laughs> the consistency of his breakfast through this scene. He's like, ah, I wasn't going to do this all in one afternoon. Ciao. <laughs> it is It is a little weird that while he's telling the story to Moira of what he's going to do, it sounds like he's telling her a plan, but then it starts to appear as if he's telling her what he has already done a la Watchmen, but then it starts to seem as if it's actually happening simultaneously with this conversation. It's, it's really weird because there's a lot that happens and it's really difficult to tell at what time this conversation takes place in relation to the various like attempts at genocide on the mutants. That was something that really threw me off while reading this issue. But you know, I, I can accept it as like condensed comic time. But yeah, it's really difficult to tell. Is it is it something that he's going to do? Is it something that he's already done? Is it something that's happening right now? It seems to be different depending on which scene we're seeing him talking. I yeah, I kind of felt like it was simultaneous because doesn't he go from there to wherever the prison is with Uranus as Uranus like rephases in and appears? They like spent that hour together yeah because you only got wow wow an hour is enough time for a bagel lunch with moira yeah and, and an uh, like this is my plan genocide for your former people oh moira is wearing a bastion costume now yeah. she is and you don't think druid can eat only one bagel i mean there's a lot of carbs in bagels you probably eat like a dozen things <laughs> i always eat a dozen bagels but that's just me <laughs> let's get into the, the bigness of it all right moira and druid together do we the one thing about this that raises a lot of questions for me is Moira did she see this coming this war with the Eternals and that's why she's going with Druig because it's happened before in many different timelines or would she not have because with Krakoa as part of the machine that this would be the first time maybe this event would have happened I think she's flying by the seat of her pants I think at this point she's like I don't know what to do I've joined up with Orcus and you 
your goals right now align with ours, so I'm here. Like, I I think that's why she's at, like, the Damocles Foundation and not, like, at Olympia, you know? Although, I, who knows if she could access Olympia, I doubt it. But. The last time I saw her was in the Hellfire Gala, which was, I mean, with all the Xbox being, like, delayed and then shipped in the same fucking week, was, like, last week, but also, I don't know, like, seven X-Men issues ago, maybe. Did anyone read the Amazing Spider-Man thing? Because after she was supposed to go to Amazing Spider-Man and have her escape from the gala finished there and then we see her again here right it hasn't it hasn't come yet. out, it's not out yet yeah, it hasn't come out yet so we haven't seen her her story in between the gala and here then right okay. correct yeah we don't know how evil she is but if she killed mary jane watson i will have problem i will have e- i was gonna say i will have a problem with her but i already have a lot of problems with her. because of the way it lines up we won't know the answer to that story until maybe september yeah. i'm encouraged by the fact that she didn't actually skin her like she seemed like she was threatening to do and it wound up being like a weird robot hand necklace projector um, <laughs> I mean, I a weird robot hand necklace projector can come off of that neck without Yo, hopefully if she without skinned her like banshee and wore her fucking face <laughs> to the gala like there, there would have been blood in the streets i think i don't think we could let mary jane watson die in an x-men event i just think that would be the <laughs> there's a lot of blood on moira's hands literally i'm hoping that it's like somebody else's maybe a bunch of wolverine blood you can spill that shit all day the next thing i want to see from moira during axe is mentally destroy rain and it's like perfection yeah that's like the next big step because it does seem like she's going back to all of her like it's... emotional connections and being like i hate you i hate you i don't yeah. need you and rain doesn't know that she's even alive please tell me that sean cassidy when he got resurrected didn't go rain you gotta talk so how do we think because druid pretty much had this plan in place how do we think moira is gonna fit in and help the druid eternal faction during this book i think she's already helped by telling him about the five Mm. i think she's gonna start going hard on the sentinel thing my guess at this point especially given the costuming of her is that she's she's gonna somehow ascend to a mother mold of some kind because that just feels like a great place to take the you know former genetic researcher on behalf of mutant kind you know to have her fall so far to become like the the generator of mutants greatest enemies i like that i like the mother mold form for her especially since she's often cast as a mother figure Mm -hmm. i think that would be deliciously ironic and cartoonish in the way that she already is at this point i mean how much more robot can you get now she's already wearing that bastion outfit so (laughs) maybe they're doing like a reverse bastion honestly in the shadows it looked a lot like gambit at first because i'm like (laughs) there's a brown trench coat with like pinkish stuff underneath and then i was oh oh no 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 okay it would be nice to see her go full sentinel so i can stop caring about this character so <laughs> i i would like to see her i mean in terms of what it brings in here not just have this all be like x-men and avengers versus you know i think what will ultimately be a huge battle with uranus saying that right but you know to imagine a uranus and nimrod side by side like bringing in the multiple threat to make it larger than the singular she's that essentially connection to that major threat here they, they keep really trying to stress that like yeah orcus isn't a thing right now like we're not worried about orcus don't worry about orcus mm-hmm. orcus isn't a thing right yeah. now i think the more you tell me something's not a threat or a thing the more <sighs> i'm expecting it to pop up at the end and being like haha guess what even in this they go out of their way to be like well we thought that the war was going to be from orcus but now and that is kind of an interesting statement to make about like where things are it does feel like they're kind of saying for this event don't worry about orcus it's coming well and orcus is like helping the eternals do this so they're still masterminding this mutant genocide like moira telling druid about the resurrection protocol 
themselves and coming in and giving him information, wanting to help out. This is still Orcus being behind it all in a way. Like, obviously the Eternals were already going to do this. I can't say enough how pissed I am about Druig because he's just like, they are deviants ipso facto. We must correct excess deviation. And everybody just goes along with that. I'm like, all right, you already have an uncontrollable thing that happens to your body when you see excess deviation that turns you into a killing machine. You could just let that be the be all end all of correct excess deviation. I'm so mad that he's like, but I want to do more. Wait, they have a literal belly barometer? Yeah, it's one of the things that Gillen kind of writes into the Eternals situation is that they have these three core programming rules. They're compelled to follow them to the point where they can't control themselves. So if they sense excess deviation, which, you know, they may not know consciously, but they're the system knows unconsciously, they have to respond to it and they can't not. It's kind of like when they were going to try to blow up Krakoa and they were like, protect the machine, protect the machine. It's just the same sort of yeah. thing. It's like if you combine Spider Sense and the like the kill pheromones from X-23 stories together. And what drives me insane is that nobody is feeling that right now, but they're still like, yeah, let's go do this genocide. Like it's, it reflects very poorly on Eternal Society that they're not, <laughs> they're not willing to just allow correct excess deviation to be limited to when they have a physiological reaction and can't help themselves. They're they're bloodthirsty at this point. At least this, this society is. How did we think about what we saw about the battle on Araco? It's, you say battle, but it seems like a, a desperate massacre? slaughter. It doesn't seem like it went well or even like could have gone well for the mutants, which is fair because they're fighting an omnigenocidal maniac who's had a million years to think about how he would wipe out all life in the universe and he only had an hour. I know a lot of people are worried. Cable is clearly dead there. I definitely don't think Storm was even there for this genocide and I'm hoping that that's just Magneto's helmet and that it got knocked off while he was saved by the Fisher King, his husband. I mean, they very clearly said that Storm was going down to the Quiet Council and that's why the rest of X-Men Red were going to a Racking Council meeting in her place. Right. The only thing that worried me on initial read-through was the fact that after the attack starts, and I'm sure this is on purpose to make you read X-Men Red to find out about it, and if you're not reading X-Men Red, it's amazing you should be anyway, but like, you don't see Storm anywhere after the attack begins. We don't see her in the attack Mm -hmm. on Krakoa either. But regardless of whether I'm worried about Storm or Magneto, who said his soul was stored in the balls, regardless of them dying, I'm extremely heartbroken over what appears to be the death of a great many, if not all, of the indigenous mutants of Araco now. Well, now I have some serious reservations about this because... It's horribly sad if they're going to leave them dead. I can't believe they will, but even if they come back, like that seems disrespectful to the Araki. Well, so because if you don't think about it much, it's just this like, okay, you know, Uranus went there and looked how strong he is he killed all of the fucking like top mutants on Araka. but how the fuck does that work when there's an iska like where the fuck mm-hmm. what how does a uranos is like that's why we have an iska this is gonna sound really dumb but this is the way i thought about that in my head which was if iska cannot lose a battle but if it's not a battle if it's a surprise slaughter does it count and and they didn't say all the mutants of Araka are dead so maybe maybe iska's though one of the ones who's still alive yeah. hiding in magneto's bubble Right. And like, if she did not fight back in this battle, or if she was not present at the Great Ring, because it's hard. It's like, did he wipe out everybody on Iraq? Or did he wipe out the Great Ring? Because he definitely seems to have wiped out the Great Ring. That's explicit. He says that he left his forces on Iraq to deal with the population and that the Iraqi won't be a problem in the war. So it seems like there are still people alive that are scrapping by. And I, Iska should have been there on the council. But you know, like, if she can't lose, maybe she's still on the Iraqi side because 
because they might win in the end, or maybe she's helping the Eternals at this time. I don't know. I don't like to think about it. Maybe she's not there, though. I mean, her last, the last time we saw Iska, she was very upset at the council. She was very, or the Great Ring. She was very upset at the, the way Tarn had been killed. You know, I think it's possible that maybe she's not even on planet at the time. It is possible. is missing this fight. The rest of that ring clearly does not trust her anymore, given that she could be so easily used to sway council seats. Right. I also, I really appreciate Uranos's aesthetic in using the modern X. Like, it's a very specific X that he lays out the bones in, you know, with the rounded points and the line down the middle. Like, it's very quiet council X. I appreciate that aesthetic. My king. Yeah, it is both quiet council X and also the angle at which we're looking at makes it look distinctly like a cross. Like yeah. a great there's also a bit of like a fall of the mutants vibe too like if you kind of work the camera down a little bit you can almost imagine those old covers where all the mutants are dead and piled on top of each other looking out into like a desert vista you know we're revisiting a lot of old names so this could be mutant massacre or even fall of the mutants Krakoa can always come back I don't like seeing them killed but like the Arachia I don't want to come back so having them actually all get killed is like there's no good way out of this (laughs) it's very high tension they've been reusing or teasing a second mutant massacre for uh, a little bit now. Ooh. I'm assuming this was it. That act does look like, yeah, those covers where you just see like Warlock laid over like Dazzler, Morkshot, and all those. Yeah. Regardless of who gets brought back, this is way worse than the Morlock massacre. This is, how many Arachii were there? A million? This is potentially a million. Yeah. Genoa, right? Well, and it hits really hard if Storm's not there too, because she wasn't there for the Morlocks either. I'm really excited to see how she reacts to it because I love seeing an angry powerful storm like throw some shit around that's a great point i hadn't thought of it in that context i agree and i hope that she doesn't feel too guilty about it. i really hadn't thought of it in that context either wow this that's... is different <laughs> yeah she keeps losing people that's the danger of leadership though take your people into danger and some of them die those are some really great stories for storm but like do i want to see her brought back to that same place again after you know ascending to finding her like inner strength and becoming the, the regent of soul i mean like she's the fucking region of the whole solar system you know like do i really want her to brought back to that level where she was uranus is pretty much destroyed massacred Araco. krakoa is getting attacked a lot more tactically where they are going after the five when wolverine realizes it sort of turns the battle for the krakoan side you know how do we feel about krakoa faring so well versus Araco? well i mean krakoa didn't go up against uranus either um yeah. i don't know i would have really like to have seen more of those battles like I'm, I'm i'm oftentimes i'm not the one who's like yeah we need more punchy pages i like the kind of space between those notes more but especially that uranus battle like unless that that's all going to be fleshed out in you know the next x-men red tie-in or whatever i felt like there was a lot of major stuff that happened a lot of major stuff just happened off panel there we got multiple pages of druig eating a bagel and then I'm like hey hey uranus slaughtered 20 of the most powerful mutants off panel and that was a little weird for me i want to see more of that whether it's because that's the x-men side whether it's just that i mean stuff is happening to the characters in this that i am most invested in and and most care about i want to see how they're fighting back I'm, I'm glad that we did at least get to see that we got to see what wolverine was able to do i didn't really understand why it ended so abruptly after he prevented jack from like killing hope with one blow like why there wasn't just more going to kill hope why they weren't continuing to try to kill the five i was a little confused by that there should have been more jack of knives content there it was cool to see
see the burning swords and stuff and knives, but I think Jack of Knives is just a stealth assassin and fighting Wolverine is probably not in their not in their to-do list for the day. That's for Solemn to do. The battle in Krakoa is really beautiful though. I mean, the psychic battle alone, I think that's some of the most stunning psychic warfare artwork I've ever seen. Yeah, I really appreciate that actually. Seeing Xavier's astral form come out of his body as he's reacting yes. to the attack. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of tell the distinct characters in their astral forms. You can see Exodus, you can see Gene, you can see Professor X fighting the big sky head, which is, it's just so intense. I love the way it coalesces out of the clouds. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. Unimind that's a face, so of course it's split down the hemispheres, right? I, I, I've always liked that touch for the Unimind. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought a lot of the art was incredible for this attack. Like, the looks of the War Eternals, like, especially yes. that blue and yellow one that's coming down. Cyclops' little death in the back of a panel is, like, really gory and gross. And I think we've probably all been waiting to talk about it, but the Hex... <sighs> Yeah. It's like peak kaiju moment after yeah. some really, it's like this, they've been really building up the kaiju thing and now we've got peak kaiju. They are so cool. They're so cool. I love the Hex so much. I love them all. I can't wait to get to know them all. I want to know about the, the very femme vampire bat or the <laughs> walking tripod eye or the, <laughs> or the terrarium that is odd. They remind me so much visually of the angels from Evangelion. Yeah, a little bit of that and a little bit of like some later Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I see that for sure. <laughs> I cannot wait to see the Avengers take on these giant kaiju. I mean, I, I bought the stupid um, Avengers mech armor, which is basically the same thing. Anytime the Avengers take on kaiju, it's right here. I can't wait for it. He's pointing to his heart. <laughs> uh, what are our hopes for this event as it continues on? I'm really hoping for more of Kieran Gillen's unique brand of comedy with the, the dictator style of Druig because this issue he was very funny if very frightening even down to that like we're here to protect you rest assured however we must ask you not to be afraid of the towering death machines off the west coast of the United States <laughs> as he just puts his hands together and leans over on live television I, I think Druig was very funny in this I think Uranus is very evil very hot I'm looking forward to Kieran Dillon's like really unique touch on these characters voices continuing throughout this and getting to see how that translates to the Avengers a little bit more I haven't seen a lot of that I, I'm worried in terms of what this is going to do for the status quo of the X-Men. Obviously, we're not, you know, undoing a whole bunch of stuff here, but it does feel, you know, four months in, four issues into the Destinies of X era, which, by the way, is is fairly quick for us to have, you know, gone from X lives, X deaths to having a Hellfire Gala and now a huge major line-wide crossover in Axe, that this era of X-Men is definitely going to be one marred with lots and lots of fucking losses. And I mean, what the outcome is like what possible positive outcome could the x-men have from this like i don't i don't even know like what this does for the next step of their story and i hope that it is to say that like they have some more agency in it that it's not just about you know that they're the thing that you know the eternals are druig's decided he's gonna kill them so he's gonna kill them and the avengers are gonna get involved because they just like to get involved in other people's shit and i don't know i'm not super high on it yet if you can tell i would like to be delightfully surprised but part of it was i did not enjoy eve of judgment as a comic book really at all Uh, i think issue one was better for sure but eve of judgment definitely made me much more wary of how much enjoyment i was going to get out of this and then the checklist at the end of eve of judgment like hey look it's 37 issues collect (laughs) them all and i was like oh fuck me (laughs) 
I'm really curious because we haven't heard from the deviants yet. And I think that's going to be, my hope is that that's going to be a really important piece of this story. If the Eternals insist on making this strong connection between mutants and deviants, then it gives, it it gives us potential for another allyship. It gives us potential for another, like, you know, another, another arm of mutant kind to really step up and show up and join with Krakoa and Arako. Krakoa, Arako, and Lemuria, you know, that could be a really fun outgrowth of the mutant story that you know we haven't really talked about we haven't really seen coming and is certainly a real possibility just given the real work that they've done to tie mutant kind to the deviants yes i would really love to see that especially since like we already have crow as like an immortal warlord of the deviants he echoes so much the structure of the other places but as like an autocrat rather than like an oligarch mm-hmm. and yeah adding that into the mix would make it so interesting that is such a cool idea jake and it seems so obvious now that you've said it oh agreed the x-men status quo and the eternal status status quo will stay the same i think the biggest change is probably going to be the avengers status quo for right now you think so i, I feel like so. they're going to be like such a minor part of this event but <laughs> i mean but besides I, losing their house i think the loss of their house is going to end that era maybe and force them to either like go back to new york or you know find another dead celestial to go live in <laughs> <laughs> It'll be nice to see them end the Dead Celestial era of Avengers. I personally don't get a lot out of this as a new place, and I love the mansion. I love Edwin. I love the parades outside. I miss those things. So I would be okay if they went back to the mansion in New York. I I don't necessarily think that's where they have to go, if anything, but it'll be. I think it'll be a nice change of pace to not have the Avengers live in an Arctic base that is like so far away from the rest of humanity. The last thing that I I want everybody's opinion on is what do we think about the human factor of it all in this book. How do we feel about how the human onlookers were reacting to basically the plan to take care of mutants? Humans get Garbage fun. people. Garbage people. Yeah. Yeah, humans are the worst. We know this. We know this. This is one of the things that they've taken from the real world we live in and applied to the 616 universe. Humans are the fucking worst. <laughs> I don't like having so many prominent people of color in this crowd of human bigots. I don't think that's a great idea. I like that they're trying to be like, oh, all of humanity hates mutants now. But it's like, <laughs> you know who really you know who really hated mutants? White, like, supremacist, Protestant, like, zealots, generally, mm-hmm. in the past. You yeah. know, it, it doesn't do much for the mutant metaphor to extend it to, like, oh, yeah, people who are marginalized in real life would also yeah. have these feelings about mutants it's like that's mm. thank you for drawing diverse crowds but <laughs> maybe this is... like yes like p- people of color queer people people who are marginalized can absolutely be bigoted in other ways and that's yeah. part of you know looking at these things intersectionally but like having so many people like let's make this crowd a little wider if they're going to be bigots is all i'm saying the crowd scene was really interesting to me because this art was locked in presumably a while ago and like this looked so much like the post super Supreme Court decision crowd that was celebrating the end of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, in that ghoulish like, life wins! Oh god. I mean, it was, and I saw people posting pictures of those crowds and this panel side by side and it was on, on Twitter and was very was shooketh. I think the thing that has me most excited to know the answers from this issue itself is the implications to the Iraq and society because we know that they do not like resurrection through Krakoan means so to bring some of them back what is going to do to those characters or are we just going to lose some of these amazing characters that we've seen built up and then we're going to lose this beautiful vibrant mutant
mutant culture. I hope that we don't lose anything of the mutant cultures that are going on because the stories that are going on in X-Men Red and Immortal X-Men, New Mutants and the like are too powerful, honestly, to be interrupted by something as petty as an intercompany crossover. And Kieran Gillen having being the person who is writing two out of these three major teams right now and major parts of this crossover, I, I know that there will be some significant shifts and there should be some significant shifts that like really change the status quo of how these teams relate to each other, but I can't imagine that they'll leave the mutants as just another victim on this. And if they do, fuck them. But like, I don't, I don't actually expect that. I want Iska. I want Iska going one-on-one with Uranus or someone major. I want there to be like, it's all fucked and on the line and like, goddamn, mutants have no answer. And then Iska fucking walks out in absolute thousand percent boss bitch mode and is the fucking hero that we don't deserve. That's that, That's what I want. Josh, I'm going to take that. I like that a lot. I want that too. I want that a lot. Now that you've like set up that visual. Oh, yes. Show me that fight. Show me Iska fighting for the mutants. 